So in a funny sort of way, whilst yes, they were difficult times and we were having to make a change, the transition became something that was very sort of natural uh, to, uh, to all of us. And, uh, you know, things did change. And I think, you know, we sort of, um, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of you know, changed as a practice. We are not the people now who we were 10 years ago. But then I'm sure that's the same for most practices. You know, if you're not changing, you're probably, <laughs> probably doing something wrong. Welcome to The Light Lounge, the first podcast for lighting designers, creatives and designers who work with light. My name is Thomas Mnich. I'm a lighting designer in New York City. Welcome back to this week's Light Lounge. As always, I talk to the most acclaimed and accomplished lighting designers in the world out there. And in this week's episode, I could not be more proud because I speak with the principal himself of Spears and Major. I speak with Mark Major. Yes, you've heard correct. His extensive experience in the lighting design industry is basically uncomparable and I am super excited to get to know how he built Spears and Major, what it takes to become an accomplished lighting designer and of course we talk about education that helps the industry grow and thrive than better before and of course there need to be pain in order for us to grow. And we start not with pain. We, of course, start with the beginning. And I'm very excited to hear and listen to how Mark explained his way to lighting. So I can best explain my sort of um, route into lighting design and my passion for it mm -hmm. uh, by sort of um, talking a little bit about the past and talking about the sort of two things that were very influential, uh, particularly when I was sort of training uh, as a, you know, when I was a student and uh, training to be a designer. Um, the first of these is that before I went into further education, what I really wanted to be was an artist. And, of, and I actually wanted to be a painter because I could paint. In fact, I still do a little bit of painting, but I'm not a great painter, but mm -hmm. you know, I enjoy it. And I think you cannot really be a painter um, uh, and I had a good education uh, when I was sort of, you know, sort of between 16 and 18 years old from a very good uh, artist. Um, you cannot be a painter without thinking about sort of, you know, issues such as color, about light and shade, about all of these things, if you see what I mean, that sort of uh, are um, central to visual communication. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I was sort of um, uh, very convinced in a sense that I should sort of pursue the fine art route but for better or for worse uh, um, uh, you know I decided that actually uh, or was also slightly persuaded by the education system I was in that uh, this was a bit frivolous to go off and be an artist uh, and you have to sort of cast your mind back to when this was it was a long time ago uh, and that I should sort of pursue something a little bit more serious and so obviously architecture found its way into uh, um, uh, my mind and uh, I sort of applied to architecture school and initially studied uh, in Brighton mm -hmm. uh, for my degree and then went to Edinburgh for my postgraduate uh, uh, training and uh, I really kind of loved architecture and I'm, I'm very glad that I sort of uh, trained as an, as an architect I'm still extremely sort of uh, passionate uh, uh, about this uh, this subject but I think in a funny sort of way it's the combination of a sort of aspiring to be an artist And yet, at the same time, training, literally training to be an architect, uh, both creatively, technically and professionally, 
Um, it's the, it was the coming together of those things that made me ready to be uh, a lighting designer when, by sheer circumstances, this uh, this opportunity came along. Mm -hmm. um, I read in a, in another interview it was like more 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 almost like falling into into architecture. That was like I mean a lot of big of the architects like drawing and painting. It's like so related, right? It's like almost yeah. it's almost sort of in, inherent. Um, a, a big part of of your inspiration is coming from nature or natural daylight, right? Um, and yeah. when I when I'm correct, I think you spend in your childhood a lot of um, time in in the Arabic Gulf, in like the the absolute opposite to like London. How how did this happen? How did you get at it as a as like a teenager into like the Arabic Gulf? How did this happen? Yeah, I mean, I spent my time not only in the in the Gulf uh, as a child uh, and as a teenager, but also a little bit in Africa as well, which has a different light uh, uh, again, uh, particularly in uh, Botswana. And uh, yeah, this was a privilege. It was a circumstance of my family uh, family life, uh, which I don't need to go into, that I ended up in uh, this region. And there were sort of, I suppose, two two extremes that I can recall and I still think is sort of something that I hold uh, very dear. Uh, um, one is, firstly, you get very used to strong, strong contrasts. If you grow up, uh, I mean, you know, I was going to school in uh, in Bahrain when I was young. Oh, wow. And, uh, um, you know, you got very used to walking in the sunshine. Uh, and in a way, it was almost sort of unbearable because it was very hot and very glary. And then getting used to the idea of, you know, that actually sort of the absence of, you know, the, the absence of the reduction of light, namely shade, was uh, extremely uh, valuable. And uh, so one very quickly um, got used to the sort of strong contrast of light, which is very different from, say, the Northern European experience, of, right. which I now live with, <laughs> which is one of actually, you know, I'm looking outside even here in uh, London today, and it's a bit gloomy and diffuse and overcast. And, you know, it's just not that a not that at all and i think these experiences they do go deep and and also as i say because i was always drawing and sketching and you know this was even in my young life i was sort of doing this i mean you know naturally one was sort of dealing with um light and shade uh, all the time but at its extremist and then of course i have strong memories of actually how dark Uh, the uh, particularly the Gulf was at that time, you know, the buildings in those days were still very low. Mm -hmm. It was quite traditional, you know, um, uh, the uh, I, I moved around uh, uh, the Gulf uh, with my with my folks. Uh, so not only Bahrain, but Oman and um, uh, Sharjah and places like this. And this was at a time when actually there weren't tall towers and there was, you know, it wasn't like it is now. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, particularly places like Oman. I mean, when I when we moved to Oman when I was a young kid, I mean, uh, it still had a city wall uh, uh, with gates that closed, um, and uh, you know it was actually a really totally dark sky. So uh, now, obviously, I, I would be lying if I was saying at that time I was so well developed in my lighting sensibility <laughs> that I noticed the dark. But you can remember these things if you sit. I mean, you can remember sort of you know how kind of dark the city was and how dark the experience was and this by contrast with this sort of very bright daytimes and these very dark night times i'm sure it had some sort of influence on my uh, thinking and my sort of uh, you know uh, psychological uh, makeup would you describe yourself as an as an explorer that this is like something that came natural to natural to you that i mean adapting to new environments 
traveling, of course, a lot is, is a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I always like a challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just one of these one of these people that naturally will kind of if if life is feeling a bit sort of too samey, then I'll somehow invent something to make it more complicated. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think actually, you know, I, it, because of my family circumstances and my father's work, I was sort of, you know, put into this position. And if I think about it, it was kind of crazy, really, as a sort of young child going to live in this environment. But I mean, like all children do, you sort of adapt and you sort of go with it. And it's very exciting. So I sort of learned a lot uh, and uh, experienced a lot. And, and I certainly have strong memories of uh, my time as a child uh, growing up in these uh, environment. And I think it would be very strange to feel that in some way it didn't influence kind of, you know, uh, the way in which I sort of um, uh, think about pretty much uh, everything. You know, your childhood, has, you know, is obviously that lays the foundation uh, for how you then sort of develop and grow into, uh, an, into, in, into an adult. So, yeah, I think I was, on one level, I was very privileged um, to have this experience. And uh, on another level, it sort of probably uh, kind of got inside my head and uh, um, made me who I am and also um, perhaps contributed to my, you know, sort of uh, development as a lighting designer. I think the the people that surround us help sort of shape us who who we are, right? And when I now yeah. sort of jump back into um, your education as an architect... When you are, as you are in a designer, a creator, an inventor, inventor today, rules are a very interesting thing. I think Howard Branson recently <laughs> said that uh, rules, rules prevent you from thinking. And I think there was a moment yeah. in your studies, in your final year, your final tutor said, um, and I, I'm, I, I hope I get the quote correctly, abandon the frivolous, fashionable pursuit of lighting design because it won't last What did you think? <laughs> that is exactly that is exactly true. That is that is what was said to me. I went to my because um, by this stage I'd uh, met Jonathan Spears and uh, uh, and um, he was working with a guy called uh, Andre Tamas uh, in this uh, firm lighting design partnership. They were very small, and in a way it was unknown territory. And one of the things that really appealed to me about meeting these guys and talking about lighting design, I mean, it was very exciting was that it appeared to be sort of new territory with no rules. And, uh, but at the same time, obviously, my allegiance at that point was obviously uh, firmly with architecture. I had kind of studied for so many years and, you know, it's a vocational training. And I sort of thought, wow, I'm surprised to find myself, you know, thinking about deviating into some allied uh, area, which was totally underexplored. Right. Um, and, um, Yeah, I went and talked to my, uh, my my diploma tutor and he said, it's, you know, it's a terrible idea. And, you know, kind of and because of my relationship with my diploma tutor, this sounds disrespectful. I don't mean to. It persuaded me that it was probably quite a good idea. <laughs> I mean, it turned out to be, but it turned out to be. And, and you know, you said about rules and uh, I would also use the word opportunity. I think I realized um, that because I sort of come across by accident um this what looked like a developing field mm -hmm. that i was not familiar with an, as an architect until i sort of met it and then i sort of explored it and i did a bit of reading and you know particularly about sort of um, lighting designers in the u.s mm -hmm. uh, about the ild about looking you know sort of there were a few magazines around at that time um, 
publications that sort of uh, did reach uh, the UK uh, from uh, from the US uh, that I could sort of look at. And I thought, wow, this is really, really interesting. You know, suddenly it seemed to me that there were, here was this, this underexplored topic, which actually seemed to be central to architecture, but also had a more creative quality. I don't mean more, you know, architecture is a highly creative discipline, but what I'm saying, it is very rules bound. Uh, and even where, you know, I came, I was developing uh, as, a, uh, as an architect during, you know, most of my tutors were sort of staunch modernists, uh, which was great. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you know, in a sense, again, like architecture sometimes invents rules because it's a discipline where, you know, sort of rules don't exist sometimes, you know, it's just one of those sort of um, uh, things that it does. So to me, there would seem to be a sort of a freedom in, um, uh, in lighting design and therefore an opportunity to do something, uh, to do something uh, special, uh, which really appealed to me. It really did. I thought it was sort of, it was a massive creative opportunity to sort of go into this unexplored territory. Then at the point when you, after you said like, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I go into lighting design. I will not, I will not listen to sort of potentially an, an advice from, from outside. So you formed with uh, Jonathan Spears, then Spears and Major. And I think we are in the year of 1993. Like forming a business is, it comes like with a complete different hat, right? You're not only thinking about architecture and light, you have to think about so many other things well how did you how did this yeah it was a little bit more organic than that if uh, if the uh, history is to be uh, sort of uh, told um i i worked in lighting design with lighting design partnership and uh, uh and then i actually traveled uh, they were based in edinburgh Mm -hmm. um, and then when I finished my studies, I actually, uh, in discussion with them, ended up in London working with them uh, for uh, at least a couple of years um, before deciding that I needed to sort of go back into architecture just temporarily um, in order to qualify because mm -hmm. I'd come a long journey and I wanted to sort of, in a way, finish something that I'd started. Right. You know, I know a number of people who are architecturally trained in lighting design who are very good, who sort of came out of architecture and actually sort of in a way probably intended to go back but never did. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have total respect for that. But I, I just sort of felt it was unfinished business. So and it, it was a good period. I mean, I went and worked for a very um, uh, sort of old and quite traditional firm of modernist architects called Howard Killick, Partridge and Amos, you know, long since gone who taught me a huge amount about professionalism, about detailing, about sort of, you know, all sorts of technical issues and kind of gave me a very, very sort of professional finish to my architectural career. And it was only after that that I then decided to um, start my own practice, uh, which I did. And it was a mixture of a little bit of architecture, uh, a little bit of uh, lighting design and a lot of teaching <laughs> at that time, because, mm -hmm. you know, basically it was anything that could allow me to eat Uh, but have the sort of freedom to do my own projects. And, you know, at this stage, I'm in my 20s and, you know, you sort of take anything that comes. And I, I was offered some teaching work at, uh, at that time. Um, so I had already, in a way, started my own little practice uh, when uh, Jonathan, who had left Lighting Design Partnership to sort of start what was called Jonathan Spears and Associates, mm -hmm. we came together and we decided to form an association between our two practices. Uh, obviously, he was, you know, in a way more experienced and sort of uh, in the field of lighting and uh, 
uh, more established, uh, should I uh, also say. Um, but it was sort of in a way, because we knew each other so well, it became a sort of natural partnership, which then evolved into Spears and Major. So there wasn't a day when we sort of cut a ribbon on an office and sort of, you know, started. Of course. It, it, it sort of evolved uh, with, and, and primarily as all of these things should do, it evolved with the projects. You know, at the end of the day, it's to do with the work. And, you know, opportunities came forward. We shared these opportunities. We became reliant on each other for, you know, many things uh, creatively and in business terms. And gradually it sort of morphed into a conversation where it was like, well, listen, we need to formalize this process much more. It can't just be a loose association between our two practices. We need to sort of formulate. And that's that was the beginning of, um, of, of Spears and Major. Um, and so, and, and yes, you're right. At that point, you know, uh, we, we started, you know, life begins to get very serious. And I think when life gets really serious when you're building a practice is when you first start employing people. Um, because no longer is it just about you and your uh, creative partner, yeah. uh, but also you suddenly have a new responsibility. You know, you have an economy, you have to sort of find the work to pay the bills and the rent and the wages. And, <laughs> and then it all, you know, spirals from there. <laughs> and then it, become, it becomes a business. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it does become a business. But the, I feel very strongly, actually, that uh, this, whilst we, we are all have to be good at business and uh, run run a proper business professionally this 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 has never been the driver it's always been the projects the the creative side the artistic side that has been the driver of uh, of the practice yeah and you know if you if you run a good design if you if you do good good work uh, then the business follows let me pause here a little bit so you just mentioned that everything sort of evolved and sort of flowed and opportunities came how was it like that you that you had just been doing good work in the past and then you had already built sort of your reputation or was there i mean in order to get work you sometimes have to be proactive have you been proactive or did did how did it evolve I think a combination of all of these things, gosh, it was a long time ago, but I mean, you know, firstly that we already had contacts because uh, lighting design partnership had um, uh, been an interesting sort of uh, test bed for um, many different sort of uh, um, uh, discussions about and uh, project uh, architectural lighting projects and discussions about architectural lighting. So in a sense, we already had a sort of shared language, which we were able to, uh, and, and, a, and a kind of working a working partnership that we were able to uh, uh, effectively, um, uh, what I'm saying is we weren't doing this from a standing start. We were kind of already were sort of had shared uh, a good deal uh, in terms of uh, creative, technical and professional development. Yeah. So we could go into situations with uh, potential clients, with architects, with other people that we were interfacing with, whether they called us or we had sort of found them and have discussions with them about what light could do. And it's an interesting thing. And uh, I sort of, uh, this is going to make me sound like some sort of old geezer now, but I, I don't mean it in this way. I think at that point, those of us who were in the early stages in the UK of developing lighting design practices. I mean, firstly, we're very passionate about what we do, mm -hmm. uh, we're doing. But secondly, I think we, we were very strong in terms of selling the message 
as to why lighting design is important. You know, so we every client we met, every architect we met, everybody we interface with, we were constantly just sort of selling what we did. Not we weren't selling ourselves. We were selling the kind of the idea of why you know lighting design is in, invaluable uh, to uh, to a project. It's interesting that I see that less now. I see practices selling themselves and not having to work so hard selling the initial concept of why you need a lighting designer in the first place. More and more clients actually are kind of you know convinced by that story or they in a way know they need a lighting designer or will add a lighting designer to the list of, of you know designers they need to employ. And um, I think in a funny sort of way, we kind of slightly lost something in terms of uh, some of you know that that passion um, but maybe that's just my perspective that passion of you know when you go in to sort of pitch for a job is to pitch the basic principles of you know how does lighting add value to a project uh, what can it sort of you know how does it relate to the architecture how might it be integrated with the with the proposition that's in front of you we were we were super passionate about this Uh, in uh, in those days maybe there is a, a loss in quality because when you sort of teach and communicate over the principles why lighting is so valuable in a project but it also could be a good sign right that that p the industry has sort of accepted or almost understood that lighting brings so much value right a absolutely i think that i'm not saying that message is complete i'm sure we all All of us working in practice, doesn't matter what level you're at, find yourself in conversations all of the time where you're trying to sort of persuade a client or an architect or somebody or a cost cost manager or someone right. of the value of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not so um, mature as a profession that every single person just goes, oh, yeah, lighting design. I know what you guys do. I kind of, you know, we totally value everything that you're doing. But I think what I've certainly seen in the last decade, maybe longer, is a much broader acceptance within the field of architecture and construction mm -hmm. uh, of the existence of lighting design and the fact that it's quite now quite common for a lighting designer to be on a project, if you see what I mean. It, the clients are more looking to choose which lighting designer and why and also sort of see what value they can extract from that competition um, than necessarily the sort of uh, the basic uh, premise of do we need one? Um, uh, but uh, I'm not saying that question doesn't come up, but I think it come, possibly comes up less than it used to. Yeah. Whereas at that stage, we were very much spending, you know, we would meet someone and we were spent, a, invested a lot of time and spent a lot of time just saying, look, seriously, guys, you know, you kind of need us. And actually, once we kind of got over that hurdle, we actually found that the client became very passionate to have us on the project mm -hmm. and kind of, in a sense, really reinforce why we were there. And that, that, that was great. And yeah, I sometimes find uh, the, not, not often, fortunately, but occasionally we, you know, you work on a project where you, um, you, you sort of, you wonder whether, I'm not saying you wonder whether the client knows why you're there, <laughs> but um, it's almost, you know, you sort of feel that you're just sort of part of a, part, 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 part of a team where, you know, it's natural to have a lighting designer. So nobody necessarily sort of questions that value. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. But it seems like that we still, it sounds like that we, are, that we still need to educate and that we still sort of need to go into every project and or conversation with like the passion of light and to communicate the principles, right? Absolutely. I think that, I think it's the sort of duty of every lighting designer, uh, independent lighting designer, 
as their first sort of thing to sort of communicate the value of what we do as lighting designers, the value of light to a project. And then in a sense, it follows that, you know, the work of your firm or your approach or your philosophy or your practice or whatever, you know, that's something you then sort of, uh, you know, perhaps push and promote uh, second. Um, uh, because, um, you know, whereas a, an architect, maybe, um, or some other more traditional design discipline probably doesn't need to sort of explain to a client the value of architecture mm -hmm. and, you know, what it is an architect does. I, I know many architects that would dispute that and say, no, actually, they really do need to remind clients about the value of what they're there for. But in principle, you know, I think most clients understand what, you know, an architect does. But I don't, still don't think not necessarily all clients understand what a lighting designer really does. So that, and now I'm, I'm sharing like an insight from sort of a younger lighting designer. It still feels extremely, for me, extremely hard to have like the architects that build physical space that exactly how you just said, people can understand what the value is because they can see and touch it. Whereas we yeah. are always sort of fighting to explain the value of light, even though it can change a mood or an emotion instantly, That that's pretty hard. So... It almost sounds like that every every lighting designer, regardless how old or young, needs to sort of still fight and communicate the the principles of light that people understand more, even more and more, the value of light. Absolutely, I totally uh, agree with you. I mean, I think it's um, uh, it's being able to. I think lighting designers need to because we're not dealing with the physical. We are, but indirectly, you know, we sort of see the result. We don't. Um, uh, we have to be very good at making analogies, telling stories, uh, explaining uh, how we sort of, you know, light makes this contribution to your to the experience of space. And sometimes, you know, we may do this pictorially. Uh, in other um, in other cases, we may just do it verbally. Uh, and in other cases, we may do it by actually sort of showing our work, um, either through photographs or actually physically. Yeah. Um, and um, which is always the, the best if you can show it uh, physically. Um, and I think, you know, all of us that are passionate about lighting design, I think, learn techniques for explaining, not only explaining what we do, but trying to really hone down the sort of uh, the bare essentials of some of those uh, messages, what we take for granted, you know, this relationship between light and shade, you know, sort of color, the problems of glare, you know, really basic stuff. Yeah. Um, we sometimes take that so much for granted. We, we sometimes, I think, as lighting designers can sort of forget to mention how important these really basic things are when you're first meeting a client or you're trying to sort of, in a way, kind of introduce someone to the value of, uh, of, of, of what we do. And uh, so it's these basic messages that we just kind of constantly need to remind uh, our clients and architects and others of. And it's, I mean, you have established your, your business and it's probably thriving more than ever before when I look at your projects and the amazing work you do. What are, what are challenges or techniques you use to communicate? Is it really just by sharing stories and, and communicating through visuals or animation? What is, what is, how do you approach, for example, like a presentation in front of a client when you work with amazing architects? Do you go in and you just say, I try to communicate with the most passion I have? Or how do you approach like a, like a 
presentation of an early stage concept, for example? Yeah, I mean, you know, first and foremost, what's most important is is the ideas. I mean, and I think one of those things that um, is always very interesting about uh, lighting design, uh, and I think it goes for a lot of visual arts, is that sometimes these ideas come quicker or more intuitively than you expect. I mean, if you're a, you know, a creative person, um, often you have many ideas about uh, the way in which to approach things. And so I think one of the things that we do as a practice is sort of consolidate those ideas quite quickly into uh, a story or into some sort of key points or, uh, and then I think what we do is set about illustrating those uh, as clearly and as precisely as uh, we can do. And I don't think that necessarily means that we then have to create a lot of CGI's of what it's all going to look like. I think quite the opposite. I think we we use a combination of words, of images, of sketches, of diagrams. You know, sometimes fat pen drawings, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. uh, sort of Photoshop renderings. Um, but you know, not in a way. The thing that we use the least is sort of CGI. If you mean, we don't want to create a photograph of what we want to do. What we want to create is an impression of the direction in which we're traveling. Because the point is design has to develop. I think this idea that, you know, we as lighting designers come up with a concept, we go in and say, here, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to light your building or light your space or mm -hmm. light your landscape or whatever. And then we get a tick in the box and then we immediately convert that into a technical package of specifications and layouts or whatever. Go, and there you go. Right. I think it is in denial of what other design disciplines uh, um, uh, have. And that is design development. I mean, I think these two terms together, design and development, are super important because it doesn't matter how good your ideas, your initial ideas, or even develop, you know, have quite a developed concept. Uh, concept, if you're not prepared to sort of challenge those ideas and believe that actually you can improve upon them in the next stage of design, then I think you know you're kind of missing uh, missing a trick. So for us, certainly at Spears and Major, design development is a very very important facet of what we do it's this ability of a designer to change as the building evolves to make suggestions to help help a, an interior space a building or a landscape evolve by thinking about the experience after dark but equally important to be then able to be open enough to actually change your own ideas and then persuade people that you've changed your mind and actually you want to do something slightly different um, it's, it's tough sometimes going in front of clients saying you know well actually now we think we should be doing this and they'll go uh, were we were we doing that? And you say, yeah, yeah, but actually, we now need to do this. Um, you know, you're rarely saying the opposite of what you said in the first place, but quite often, you know, you will reflect on things. You'll have another, you know, design session in house, and somebody will come up with something or say something, you know, that's challenging, and then you think, ah, oh, you're right. Actually, we need to change this. Um, so for me, design development is an important part of the process. And probably a huge team effort on, on, on your side as well, right? Because to to yeah, define ideas, there are a lot of ideas in the space, but then sort of communicating, arguing with your within your within your office culture is probably a big part of it as well, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we discuss this from time to time. I mean, I grew up in architecture at a particular time. I, I'm not sure whether it's the same now where the focus of everything was the crit. You know, you would literally pin your work on the wall and it would be subjected to a range of criticism, you know, some of which hopefully was positive and constructive, 
but a lot of which was out of this sort of school of architecture, which is you sort of learn and develop through the hard knocks. And, um, you know, this was a sort of, and I think, I don't think it's changed a lot. I think architecture is still like this. So certainly that's the way I grew up as a designer, which was the expectation of being heavily critiqued, if you see what I mean, and that you sort of learn by, in a way, arguing for your design. Mm -hmm. And if you manage to sort of kind of make a convincing argument, then, you know, your design obviously is robust and, you know, is probably uh, the right the right uh, direction. Whereas if it sort of collapses when you're, you know, being challenged, then maybe you have to think again. And I think it's interesting in, 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 in lighting design, um, I sometimes, you know, I read what I read in the magazines and I see, you know, sort of I, I overhear conversations and I, I'm not saying there's no robust criticism within or critique within lighting design, but I certainly think there's a sort of, you know, a degree of sensitivity on some days. Um, so as a practice, you know, we're, I think we're quite sort of, I'm not saying hardcore, but we're quite happy to sort of pin things on the wall and critique it quite hard. Um, and I'm not saying everybody always loves that. No one likes their work to be critiqued, you know, and we don't do it for the sake of doing it, but we do it in order to sort of improve what we do. Um, and I think that's a sort of a, a strong part of uh, things that Spears and Major is, you know, sort of is being prepared to sort of critique our own work internally um, quite robustly uh, in order to improve the design. I think, you know, that's what you have to do as a designer. And I think that makes the quality of the projects just so much better, even though the process might, I don't want to say hurt, but is a challenge for one <laughs> or the other, right? To, to uh, yeah. yeah. But it's like so many fields, isn't it? You know, I, I'm a great admirer. I was never a great sportsman when I was young. I, I wish I had been, but I, I, mm. I really wasn't good at sport. But as I've got older, I've really gone, come to appreciate the, you know, the value that sport brings to society. And, you know, there are a lot of good analogies, you know, You know, to be a great athlete, sometimes, you know, training hurts. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you have to challenge yourself and you have to not be satisfied with what you're doing. Yeah. You know, you want to improve upon your time if you're a runner or whatever. Um, and, you know, it's, it's probably a really rubbish analogy, but I'm just saying, I think there, you know, you actually have to set yourself goals as a designer to sort of, it's about constantly researching, improving, developing, you know, it is, a, it is, a, it's a journey. Yeah. Um, or otherwise, you just sort of stay static. And, uh, and he, you know, you could say uh, sometimes students kind of um, speak to us as a practice, you know, to me or to members of a practice as, as if we sort of, you know, not only kind of know what we're doing, but we're sort of somehow complete and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you know, we are constantly not believing that what we do is good enough. <laughs> You know, we want we we always want to be better at what we do, and uh, it, it's that drive for for, I guess, a sort of perfection that keeps you going. I you think, know, you, yeah. I, yeah, I just wanted to add to the sports analogy. I think it's a perfect analogy, actually, because um, so many professional athletes speak to companies and give advice because the setbacks and setbacks and setbacks. I think Michael Jordan hit like thousands and thousands of uh, balls not into into the net and the percentage that he did just were just so good because he had so many failures in the process and i think even yeah. mohammed ali he said like like in regards to push-ups i think that the ones that don't hurt are the ones that i already can do and i'm only training <laughs> sort of to make the ones that hurt right because that's the way 
um, how we grow. And it's very interesting because I think the the lighting design industry sort of in, in, the, in the younger ages, as I perceive it, is very, I don't want to say soft, but very, very nice. And it's um, it's always maybe I'm on thin ice here to criticize someone else's work because you never know what the process was and whose failure potentially was to sort of implement a design in the process at the end. But I I I completely understand that only through sort of um, let's say. I don't want to say truth, but because truth is like also a very variable thing, but through honesty, <laughs> if something is good or bad, only the design gets gets better. Yeah. But I think this is part of maturing as a profession. I think, you know, in the in the early days when I first, you know, let's take the UK context, pretty much everyone who was working as an independent lighting designer knew each other quite well. I'm not saying we were all necessarily friends, though actually a lot of us were friends. You know, you sort of, we, you know, kind of, and they still, many of these lighting designers remain my friends. Mm -hmm. um, so therefore it was probably to sort of, you know, um, to critique someone uh, openly and overtly was therefore in a way really treading on sort of, you know, it's very sensitive ground because you, you know, it's sort of, you know, you're always sort of careful and sensitive, aren't you, with your, with, with, with your friends and your neighbors. Um, Whereas in architecture, obviously, you know, architects, you know, sometimes, you know, you get very interesting debates growing up between different sort of areas of architecture and different types of architecture, some of whom say some pretty rude stuff about you know, other people's work um, because it's a matter of philosophy and, you know, there are sort of opposing beliefs. And I think one of the encouraging things is hopefully that as we grow as a profession and You know, now there are thousands of lighting designers and lots, hundreds of practices worldwide and, you know, mm -hmm. if not thousands, thousands of practices worldwide. Mm -hmm. And there's a sort of growing body of work. I think, you know, in a sense, it's natural and that, that, that critique uh, of, uh, of, of work will, will probably necessarily develop. But you're right. I mean, we, you know, we're all nice people. So therefore, you know, perhaps we're sort of slightly backward in coming forward in terms of saying, well, that's a bit rubbish or that's brilliant. <laughs> oh, I think we're very good at saying when things are brilliant, but we're not so good at saying when things aren't so brilliant. Right. Um, uh, and also we live in a world where actually, you know, the difference between experiencing a photograph of a piece of lighting design and the difference of actually standing in a space and feeling feeling not what the light does for that space so we all know if we're kind of experienced lighting designers the difference between these two things um, and i always hope you know sometimes we get challenged of saying you know are you, you guys you know you have such nice photography of your work and of course we do um, but at the same time what i always hope is that if you go to um, visit the project that it's better than the photograph <laughs> And uh, I think one of the skills of an architectural lighting photographer is to sort of try and capture how it is mm. and not just make a nice photo. Uh, and, uh, you know, we sort of we work hard at that with the photographers that we work with to try and say, look, we want you to capture the experience of, you know, how it feels uh, as opposed to just make some nice eye candy uh, for, uh, you know, for um, uh, for the, you know, Instagram or for you know, the website or whatever. So, so maybe maybe ask you. Let me ask a critical question. So thinking about awards and how they are judged and how then, mm. like, right? Because the, the process is you have to look as a judge and you've been on so many panels and on so many projects and it's it's probably really hard to make a judgment because you only have the 2D but you don't really know what it actually is in space, right? 
Yeah, it's a it's a tough one that because um, you know none of the award schemes can really afford to send judges to each of the schemes they're considering. You know, this is a sort of practical issue. I mean, even if they had the money, pro- people probably don't have the time. Yeah, you know, to sort of travel all around, particularly for international awards like IALD awards. But I have to say, you know, I've, I've only judged on the ILD awards once, uh, and this was a little while ago. But I have to say, I was amazingly impressed uh, at the way in which the limitation of not being able to visit each and every scheme mm-hmm. was, um, uh, in a way, mitigated by the, the way in which, over many years of the awards, the questions that are asked and the way in which you sort of specifically kind of convey the solution that you came up with um, in your own words through these sort of, you know, very sort of short paragraphs of information, when combined with the photographs, paint a picture of a, of a lighting scheme that works or doesn't work. And so I think it is possible. I mean, ultimately, you know, of course, you want to go and experience um, for to give something an award you want to go and experience the lighting scheme and the building as well because we shouldn't forget that you know it's not just about the lighting it's it's about the way in which that's then integrated into the architecture or the way it plays with it you know play plays against the architecture or it reinterprets the architecture or whatever it does and so you know sometimes i think we can look at we can look at a photograph of a lighting scheme as part of an awards um, uh, submission or whatever, and we can appreciate what the lighting designer is doing because uh, they can tell us. Um, but the bit that's really difficult sometimes to appreciate is the building. If you don't know that building, you mm-hmm. know, if, you, if you're not familiar with and intimately, and quite often it actually works to the disadvantage of the lighting designer because you know we've worked on many many buildings where the level of complexity to that building and the, the the difficulty of that building is very difficult to convey um, through a lighting award submission. You know, we can, because either the buildings are very big or the projects are very long. I mean, you know, an example might be, you know, like a, a major airport. You know, we've worked on some major airports where we spent eight eight years working on the lighting design for a massive project and then you're only trying to tell the story of that in like i don't know 16 slides or something right or, you know, 16 insane pages and yeah and a few paragraphs of text i mean how on earth can yeah. anybody judge whether this is a good lighting scheme or a bad lighting scheme with yeah. in a way when it's such a sort of highly complex and extensive project and yet you have so little time to sort of convey this information so yeah it's in a sense you can say it's not a perfect process but I generally think that most of the serious award schemes come pretty close these days to mitigating some of the disadvantages of these processes. So yeah, as the as the built environment and the sort of the the um, the profession to building something has more and more layers and more like experts in it. Do you feel over the years that implementing details that you have designed at the beginning is something that happens fairly smoothly at the end and you see that <laughs> that it is okay I, i completely yeah it seems not <laughs> how often well, is it is it still a challenge to get the details that you designed at the beginning in mockups to like get implemented in the end that's the most challenging bit i mean you know it's it's one thing to come up with good ideas and communicate them very clearly and excite everybody hmm. about the direction of your design but it's totally pointless 
if at the end of the day you can't deliver it. And of course, there are very many different methodologies of delivery this day, these, this day and age in uh, construction around the world. Um, so, for instance, if you're working in a more traditional situation where you're really literally sort of detailing, doing proper detailed design, and then this is being sort of, you know, kind of, in, you know, developed and installed by a contractor, you have more chance of protecting the detail because of this traditional relationship. Whereas if you're working with design and build, it's a totally different world. I mean, you know, even when you hand the drawings over, it's a sort of an approximation towards the detail because there's a design and build process. And as I always say, you know, uh, one of the problems in design and build is that the word build is big and the word design is often lost. I mean, you know, it's about, you know, you call it and build, you know, because the design gets forgotten. Um, and I think that's one of the most challenging environments, particularly when you're working on large projects is how as a designer to, you know, design and craft something to the level that lighting really needs. I mean, we all know that if we adjust a light fitting uh, or a lamp just by, you know, a few degrees, this can make a massive difference. And trying to, in a way, control and enable somebody else, a third party, a contractor to sort of deliver that level of finesse yeah. is really, really challenging. And I think actually, uh, if I think at Spears and Major, we, we've learned over a long period of time how to do that. And I think the fact that we, you know, hopefully get some good results from some of our projects in terms of delivery, that actually the final result actually bears some relationship to the, co the original concept and actually it has integrity um, is founded on the fact that we've learned techniques to kind of convey the, this detailed information, not only to the client and the architect, but also to the contractor. And through sort of communication, through communication on every single level from, you know, the drawing to models, to mock-ups, to mock-ups in particular and tests, and most of all to persuasion, the power of persuasion that this is important. And also knowing which battles to fight is very important. You know, if you try and, you know, let's say you have 12 key details on a project and that's probably already six too many um that you know you know which where to give and where to push um there are certain details where you just have to fight like crazy to protect the detail um, because you know if you don't you know some very big part of your design is going to be lost uh, or uh, or ruined in other cases you know you may have come up with a detail where you know maybe even in hindsight it's tricky particularly when the project's on site if you think you know, maybe this is a bit fussy or we're trying a bit too hard here. Um, you've got to know when to let go. So um, yeah. that that's a given. So, of course, there was a, a slight transition phase in, in your profession um, while you had um, sort of Keith Bradshaw coming up sort of as your as your partner mm -hmm. as he is today. It seems like you've built a company that allowed for a transition of that magnitude to happen in a successful yeah. and healthy way. I know exactly what you're saying, Thomas. So, you know, and you said it very eloquently and very sensitively. Um, listen, you know, Jonathan and I had a very strong uh, uh, creative and business partnership. You know, it was, you know, and also we were chalk and cheese. You know, we were very different personalities and uh, we sort of benefited each other working together in this uh, in, in this way. 
But I think above all, we mustn't forget that it's actually to do with everybody else that works in the practice. You know, we have some people that have worked with us for many, many years who are great designers. Uh, people like, you know, sort of Philip Rose, Ian Ruxton, Carrie Donahue Bremner, you know, and one of those people was obviously Keith. Um, and uh, so, you know, Keith was already a director of um, uh, uh, Spears and Major uh, at the point when obviously we went through this transition when John got ill and, you know, sort of uh, retired from the firm, which is, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, this life sometimes, you know, deals these uh, terrible moments, uh, but you have to sort of as a practice uh, to sort of go with it. And Jonathan himself actually was very sort of supportive in terms of this uh, uh, this transition. But I, um, uh, but in a way, already the three of us were working very closely together. And we had a strong ethos as a practice, and we had a lot of great people working within that practice who, you know, maybe were not the people that you would see or the names that you would know, but were absolutely fundamental to the way the practice worked. So in a funny sort of way, whilst yes, they were difficult times and we were having to make a change, the transition became something that was very sort of natural uh, to uh, to all of us. And, uh, you know, things did change. And I think, you know, we sort of, um, you know, we've, we've, we've kind of you know, changed as a practice. We are not the people now who we were 10 years ago. But then I'm sure that's the same for most practices, you know, if you're not changing, you're probably <laughs> probably doing something wrong. Um, uh, so it was an enforced change uh, and enforced, you know, for a, a terrible reason. But nonetheless, because I think we just had such a strong kind of identity and a kind of sense of who we were, I think it, Keith and I naturally kind of came together and knew what to do and how to work together and to sort of form this new partnership and to move the practice to the next kind of chapter. And I think that's what it is. You know, it's all one story, but there are different chapters uh, in the uh, in the story. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it was a testament to the strength of the practice that, you know, when whether it had been me that fell over or John that fell over or whoever it had been, that the practice just keeps going and gets stronger. And that is a testament to kind of in a way in which the, the practice that we built, but but by that practice, I don't just mean Jonathan or me or Keith, but I mean actually everybody that works in that practice. And part of the setup why this was so strong is that, and I'm just sort of repeating here, is to sort of invest into people and to help people sort of find their part in 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 the company. Yeah, I mean we've we've always. Um, tried to, um, particularly in, uh, say, recent years, tried to be uh, as within reason, as horizontal as we can in terms of affording people opportunity, you know, alongside those names I mentioned uh, just now, you know, there is a sort of, you know, uh, a younger generation of designer, Clementine Fletcher-Smith, Vince Roos, Hiro Toyoda, I mean, you know, great group of um, uh, designers uh, who, you know, sort of have joined those people who've been with the practice a long time, who given us even more strength and they're younger and they have sort of, you know, uh, the energy and they have sort of great ideas and, and also great uh, technical knowledge. Um, and I think, again, hopefully they would agree with me that the development uh, of this group or generation of uh, designers 
which has strengthened us, um, uh, comes out of the fact that we hopefully have provided the opportunity for them, for the practice to grow. I don't mean grow in terms of size, but in grow in terms of you know its own internal uh, development. Uh, we certainly are no longer what I would call an atelier practice, you know, where basically it's Keith and I and everybody else just has to sort of do as they're told, or you know, you're sort of you know you have to sort of transition the ideas up and then transition the ideas down. There's elements of that, of course, as a practice. Every practice has that, you know, that the principles have strong artistic ideas and they kind of. But I think we're, we're we're sort of bigger than that now. I think we're sort of a community of designers, and I think Spears and Major has considerable strength, born out of that sort of the, the diversity of that community of designers, of which I am one. And certainly, like people who have worked with and that are still with you, and even people that potentially pursue different careers, have. Um, I mean, you have influenced just so many people by your practice and your work. I think a lot of other business owners and lighting designers can just learn a lot from that because there are a lot of transition and tra transitions to to happen. And a lot of the lighting design companies have also names in their sort of in their title. And it's, I think, a question that becomes potentially bigger for some or the other. Whereas, how do we build a company that potentially passes on? beyond sort of my necessarily um, involvement. Uh, yeah, uh, well, that's very flattering of you to suggest that, you know, we may have had uh, influence on other people. I'm for sure people that have worked with us and have gone somewhere else or whatever, I'm sure they have been influenced with us by, by us. But uh, it's very nice for you to suggest that, you know, maybe other practices might be influenced by us. But equally, it should, you know, we are influenced by other people. <laughs> So, um, you know, we have a great respect for uh, many other, the work of many other lighting practitioners around the world. You know, we sort of, you know, in a sense, you know, we are challenged by, you know, people like uh, Andreas Schultz and Lickens Licht and uh, uh, the work that they do there and, you know, Caramende and LPA, you know, these are people who are sort of, you know, we the work we really admire and we kind of, you know, say, well, we, we'd like to be as good as them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe they'd be surprised to hear that, but uh, I don't think so because, you know, they do great work. And uh, um, and that's so important is, you know, that you, you, you've got to kind of keep looking at what other people are doing. And, uh, you know, um, there's, there's some really great lighting designers uh, around doing some fantastic, uh, fantastic work uh, around uh, around the world. And I think, uh, you know, it's sometimes I go to sort of talks, you know, PLDC or wherever and I hear people talking about their work and maybe it's a lighting designer whose work I don't know really well and they explain what they're doing I think wow this is amazing you know why don't I know more about this person this is incredible you know I should be paying more attention <laughs> um, and, and this is great because this is all part of progress of the lighting profession you know if we're not getting better it's a worry <laughs> so but we are getting better as a profession uh, I think much better you know I, I mean if You know, many of the lighting designers, if I look at what they in our own practice, what they know at their age, it's way more than I knew at their age. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> so. Probably because of great leaders in the industry that actually help and share and continue to educate and inspire. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, uh, I hope so. That's the way it should be, certainly. I mean, I still, still think the one thing that is, and we haven't touched on this yet, the one thing that I think is, I am surprised by 
um, given that you know I've been in this business for over 30 years, um, is that lighting education hasn't moved as quickly as I might hope and I might have thought. Um, you know, in the early days, it was totally accepted that there were there was no one sort of teaching lighting design at sort of degree level or even at postgraduate level uh, effectively. And uh, I know there are a lot more courses now, you know, Wismar, Hildesheim, Parsons, you know, and, you know, some really great places that teach lighting. And I'm just mentioning a few. But it is surprising that actually, the, you know, I speak to a lot of young lighting designers who ask advice about sort of where can I go and get a lighting education? And it's not like I can say, well, you know, here's a hundred places worldwide that are all of amazing quality to choose from. Yeah. I still think it's quite, and I'm sure there's lots that are doing this, but not really kind of, you know, necessarily established. But that 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 to me is uh, um, uh, slightly sort of disappointing that uh, lighting education hasn't gone further. And I think it is due to a lack of people, um, because I think, you know, where do you draw the people, where do you draw the educators from, particularly experienced, you know, practitioners? who can help with lighting education are often busy in their own practices and don't necessarily have the time to kind of then, you know, participate in lighting education at the level that they should do. I mean, there are some fantastic people out there that do, you know, sort of uh, like Derek Porter or uh, like Michael Roda at uh, Vismar. And, you know, there's many more that I can mention, but uh, still, you know, you need loads more of those guys <laughs> to sort of uh, help. So it's not necessarily the the content of education, it's more put the amount or how would it need to evolve where you think, okay, this is something now I can, that would help and that would improve the industry? Well, firstly, I think is some common recognition. I mean, the, di the difficulty is that many of the established professions such as architecture, even interior design and you know, younger professions like interior design grew up in their own individual countries on a national scale, looking, at, looking abroad to what others were doing, but in a sense um, sort of came to arrived at an idea of what architecture and architectural education is or what interiors or you know, industrial design education or whatever the design education is was On a national scale, lighting design has sort of evolved against an international background where, you know, we don't necessarily have a common understanding of what a lighting designer does and how they should be educated. Um, you know, the perception of this in, say, Germany, from Japan, from the US to the UK may be, I'm not saying widely different, but can be quite different mm -hmm. in terms of the specifics. You know, in some countries, there's a much stronger belief in daylighting as a fundamental part of that education, whereas in other countries, you know, the separation between daylighting and artificial lighting is more pronounced. Um, so I think, you know, the sooner we can arrive at sort of um, some consensus of what a lighting education, a basic lighting education should consist of, mm -hmm. um, uh, the, uh, the easier uh, things, will, uh, things will be. And for that to happen, I guess, you know, educators, those existing educators from around the world need to sort of try and get together um, and actually sort of compare notes and sort of uh, perhaps, you know, look at each other's courses and say, you know, is there an optimum course that should be commonly taught, if you see what I mean, around the world? You know, what are the basic components of lighting design that need to be taught? Um, Do you think we can learn from 
again, architecture. And I'm thinking about like the certified lighting designer that there are sort of more standards or more guidelines. I don't want to say rules, but like more like it, it so almost sounds like there is like one missing world entity that sort of helps to bring these people together. Or do you think this could? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we can. I think we can learn from. Uh, I, I mean, I'm going to say architecture because I trained as an architect, and that's what I, I understand that education system, uh, you know, better than probably other education systems. Um, so there are three clear components to an architectural education. One is creative. You know, you, your development against a body of theory, against a body of history, against a body of sort of um, design knowledge, if you see what I mean, the way you sort of learn to be a creative architect um, uh, over a period of time and that's done as i say by being set a brief developing a project having it critiqued um, and you sort of grow as a designer there's then the sort of technical education as an architect and that's very for me that was very sort of imperfect you know as an architect you learned about construction you learned about structures you learned about services you learned about these sort of basic components of a building and you sort of learn enough but you didn't learn sort of, you know, the, 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 the minutiae because there was no point because particularly with technology, it moves on. And I think that's the same could go for lighting education. There's no need to train lighting designers in colleges and universities about the real deep specifics of, uh, the of lighting technology because by the time they get into practice, if that's where they're heading, it's changed anyway. It's probably changed next week, you know what I mean? So, you know, they just need to have the, the basic principles. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, most importantly, is the professional education. And I think actually in architecture, that's very strong, is that you cannot qualify uh, as an architect and the same in engineering. You cannot qualify as an engineer and be sort of licensed, if you see what I mean, to actually practice and call yourself an architect or an engineer or whatever, um, unless you've achieved a certain standard of professionalism and that sort of ethically, legally, um, and sort of in terms of the way in which you conduct yourself and run a practice or conduct, you know, you understand the principles of how you, in a way, serve society, serve the clients that you work for. Um, and I think this is sort of a very, very important facet of, um, uh, of the overall educational picture. And I think at the moment, um, unless you tell me differently, you're probably closer to this. I'm not sure that there's one university college or uh, institution I've found in the world so far that is dealing with all three of these components. You know, maybe they give a good creative education, maybe they give a good technical education, maybe, but professional education, I think, is maybe sort of, you know, the next step uh, for, uh, it tends to come through joining the IALD or joining sort of, you know, uh, ILP or something, you know, one of these organizations. Yeah but it's slightly detached at the moment. I completely agree that there is, I think in education, there is at the moment a good uh, creative aspect and theoretical aspect, but lighting, fortunately and or unfortunately, you only can experience it by actually taking it into your hand and experiences in, in the day-to-day -day business. And um, yeah, I think, yeah, I'm, I 100% agree that, you just learn so much more in a in a professional stage working in the professional environment that you would that is really hard to sort of i think integrate into um into an education system so i completely agree that this um would make absolute sense to sort of either combine or to potentially um, yeah program in a way that this is that the professional work as a as an educational tool would be um definitely helpful 
Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting is that if you have this combination of a creative, technical and professional education as a foundation, you know, some people are more creative, some people are super professional, some people are, uh, you know, kind of more technical. I mean, you know, some people are great at all three. I mean, it just depends on the person. Mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting is then when you come onto what you referred to earlier as the sort of the business side of running a practice or working in a practice, it's, you don't have to necessarily run a practice. It's also you have to sort of, um, as you sort of grow as a designer within a practice, you sort of have to understand more about how how the practice of lighting design works or otherwise you just don't get anything done. I think it's interesting that if you're strong at those three components, uh, creative, technical and professional, it's the way it then informs those parts of your business that you never set out to learn. I mean, I often say to, um, you know, people that work for us, um, you know, when I started out as a designer, I didn't start out to, you know, to running a business, I need to know about finance, human resources, um, you know, the law, uh, contracts, you know, you need to, it's just stuff that you have to sort of self-teach yourself or learn, you know, put through mistakes or whatever. But I think what's interesting is if you're strong on this sort of creative, technical and professional thing educationally, if you have that foundation, it then informs the way you think about finance. It informs the way you think about contracts and um, informs the sort of way you sort of behave as an employer, if you see what I mean. It sort of it, it kind of provides you with a sort of ethical, moral and legal foundation to your uh, to the way in which you conduct your business. So this 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 education is really um, important that uh, that you know it's very sort of thorough, uh, and I can't imagine that if an architect has to train for seven years or whatever, uh, it, I know it varies from country to country, but broadly seven years to be an architect, I would have thought that, given what we do, I think we probably need to train for seven years as well. Absolutely. What is there to encompass, a, yeah. encompass all of this? Yeah. Is there a specialty what you like to do most or? As a simple question, what do you like to do most in your business right now? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I suppose the obvious answer is to say I like to design. But I say that from the point of view of somebody that, like most people that run a practice, don't spend as much time designing as they would necessarily like to because you're dealing with all of these other things, particularly, you know, sort of you know, we have to deal with things like marketing, you know, you have to get work. I mean, there's all of these things to uh, to do. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I still most enjoy the process of, uh, of designing. I think the thing that I miss the most is drawing. I mean, you know, I come from a world in which we used to do manual drawing. Um, and of course that doesn't, you know, still sketch in a sketchbook and, you know, try and sort of contribute to, uh, um, to uh, to presentations when I can with you know the odd sort of thing but you know and I I look at some of the guys that work in our practice at their skills digitally you know what I mean whether it's with a tablet or kind of you know um, whether it doesn't matter whether they're working with Photoshop or Revit or whatever they're working with you know incredible skill um, and I sort of I sometimes I don't have the time necessarily to sort of learn all this software and to sort of do this and I. I sometimes feel envious if you see what I mean as saying, like, well, I'd really like to kind of do some of that uh, and um, kind of, you know, contribute to our graphic communication uh, in this uh, in this way, um, which suggests that, you know, I still uh, deep down have a sort of love of that end of the process. 
Um, but uh, we can't all choose what we want to do all of the time. <laughs> do you still paint? Yeah, I do. I mean, not as much as I should. Uh, I tend to sort of <laughs> do a little bit for, uh, I mean, I would love to kind of, uh, kind of have more time uh, to kind of, you know, spend more time sketching and painting and doing those things. I tend to sort of manage to do an odd bit of painting when on holiday. Uh -huh. And I won't pretend this is not, you know, fine art. I mean, it's just something to satisfy myself. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, I would love to feel that uh, I could, you know, as I get uh, as I get older, I manage to create more time in which to sort of do a little bit more of that aspect of what I love. So coming to 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 an end here, um, I mean, Spears and Major seems to be like thriving like never before. And the next question is not in regards to your experience, but I think it's a good question anyone potentially should be asked or can be asked. What kind of legacy would you like to to provide? What would you like to leave behind? Oh, maybe it's a sad question. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question before. Um, it's funny, isn't it? You know, if, if you train as an architect um, and uh, you train and practice and become a really good architect, I guess you leave buildings behind. And already as a lighting designer, obviously, because I'm getting you know a little bit older, only a little bit older, um, I, uh, I already sort of see lighting schemes that I did that I was very proud of superseded. In some cases, upgraded. Wow. In other cases, just changed <laughs> by other lighting designers. <laughs> Sometimes that's done respectfully. In other cases, it's just done. It just happens. Uh, which is always one of the downsides of lighting design is that we work with a very ephemeral medium. You yeah. know, it's uh, it's a medium where you know so satisfying in many ways, but you know, it obviously it does have a sort of shelf life to a certain extent because of the technology that we, we, we deal with. You know, maybe LED schemes, because they last so long, will be different, but I don't think so because we're seeing LED schemes being superseded um, because, you know, it's just stuff changes. Um, so in a funny sort of way, the legacy of your work then becomes a bunch of photographs of what was, not what necessarily still exists. I mean, I'm very much hoping with some of our cathedral lighting schemes, uh, or some of the sort of certain types of scheme that maybe they will, you know, actually last a sort of reasonable amount of time. But I have to be honest in terms of saying, you know, if I talk to my kids and say, you know, in 50 years time, go and see the lighting scheme that I did when I was, you know, in my kind of 50s or something, then they probably would be unlucky. <laughs> uh, they can only look at the photograph of what I achieved as opposed to, or not I, but the practice achieved, um, as opposed to actually going to be able to experience the actuality of it. So that then leaves you with a tough legacy problem is saying if it's not going to, if the work is not going to be the legacy, maybe the legacy is the sort of what the work inspires other people to do. Um, I don't mean that in a kind of egocentric or it may sound pretentious way. Not at all. What I'm saying is that if what you say, what you do, the way you practice and the work you produce then leads to another generation of lighting designers, you know, looking at that and saying and then producing their work, if you see what I mean, because they've been influenced or inspired in some way by what you do, then that I see as a really valuable, uh, valuable legacy. Um, that you know you've been part of a sort of process of the development of something that's going to make lighting design get better and better uh, as the generations move on. 
I think that's super beautiful, but because I think it, it captures like the quality of the mother of all lights, the daylight. It is always changing, always adapting, always fleeting. So as you have had, um, yeah, inspired and educated so many people, is there one piece of advice that you that you give to sort of all of, if you want, if I want to say like all of your students, but what would be a piece of advice that you sort of give that comes up over and over? Uh, I think it's you. You, it, it's it's a hard journey to become an accomplished lighting designer. You know, I still feel I'm learning something new every day, um, and so that that journey is never really complete. Um, and I think you do need a certain degree of discipline, inner strength, and you definitely need sort of passion and sort of belief to sort of get you through so you know if I if I was you know I advise people in our own practice um, that you know it's how it's it's this ability to sort of roll with the punches and to learn from your mistakes as much as to learn from your successes um, uh, that makes you a better a, a, a better lighting designer I you know I sometimes see whether it's within the practice or elsewhere you know, a sense of sort of, you know, I've seen people be disappointed by something that they sort of thought was going to be like this and it turns out like this, or, you know, maybe they come up with a great idea and that idea gets cut because of cost or any number of disappointments as a designer that come uh, come along the way. But it's actually the disappointments in a funny sort of way that make you do, I know it sounds terribly trite, but it does make you stronger because you, you know, there are days when design can be super frustrating, uh, you know, you've You know, you can be exhausted by the process and, you know, it can actually sort of become, you know, quite sort of dark, uh, you know, your sort of mood about kind of, you know, thing, when things aren't going well. Um, and I think it's actually how you react at that time when the going is getting tough, not when it's good, um, that uh, is makes you as a, as a designer. And I think if you talk to really great designers uh, and you read about, you know, the successes and failures, you, you, you find that that's, that that's a common message, actually. You know, it's sort of, it's almost, we need the adversity uh, in order to sort of move, move, move forward. If it's, if it's not hurting, then you're probably not trying hard enough. <laughs> that sounds terrible, doesn't it? I think it's, no, well, I think it's unfortunately true. And I think it's, it's, yeah, it's just what it is. Absolutely. Mark, I, I I'm super grateful for your time. Um, thank you so much. That was absolutely um, delightful and enlightening for me and I hope for, for many of the listeners. And I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time and also for your great questions. It was a really great conversation. So thank you, Thomas. Thanks. And that was the conversation I had in this week's episode of The Light Lounge with Mark Major. I could not be more excited and I think it's another great example how amazing our industry is. And when I listened to Mark, it was absolutely fascinating and inspirational to see what it takes to become a lighting designer and what we all still have to pay attention to because... Yeah, it's absolutely true. We are only able to grow if we are accepting change and if we are accepting that it sometimes might hurt and see opportunity in moments where 
the light is not necessarily with us to speak, of course, lighting design language. Okay, thank you so much for listening. I'm very excited. Again, if you should not know Spears and Major, the 1% of you listening that don't know Spears and Major, please check out the website spearsandmajor.com and of course their Instagram account spearsandmajor as well. I am also super excited for all the super positive feedback that I get and please continue to do so. Please say hi. I'm excited to connect and to get to know your story. Please say hi on Instagram under Thomas underscore Mnich or on LinkedIn under Thomas Mnich. So I wish you all a beautiful week. Enjoy your time and stay lit.